We're going to get going. We're going to finish up the book of Daniel today. We spent the last couple of weeks, including Christmas Eve, kind of diving through it. And, and the thing is about the book of Daniel is, is I really want to show you, I mean, I think we know this. The book of Daniel is very critical when it comes to end times prophecy, the things we're talking about. And that's really what always gets focused on when you talk about Daniel. And we miss in it the little nuances that are there because it's important to the Gentile world, which is what you and I make up. We are Gentiles. And so because of that, we often, you know, glaze over because all anybody talks about, Daniel 70 weeks, the end time stuff, the different visions and all that. And that stuff's important. And we're actually going to talk about Daniel 70 weeks. We're going to talk about the first half of it today. I'm not even going to get into the last half because you're opening Pandora's box at that point, and we will never finish up this, and that's really not the point of what we're doing. But I wanted to show how everything that took place was a result of God's judgment and prophecy that was given, and that's what we talk about. Why they were exiled in the first place is because they were disobedient to the laws that God had laid out, and judgment was cast upon them. They would be in exile for seven years because they had not kept the Sabbath, the land Sabbath is that they had to let the land rest every seventh year, and they had not done that. And that is the very reason that they were put into exile. They were removed from the land to give the land the rest that it was uh, owed. Now, in this, we saw Daniel, who came in there to Babylon when he was taken as a teenager. And he rises to power under two different regimes, of course, with Nebuchadnezzar, and again with Cyrus in, in the Persians. And they put him over the head of all the wise men. The Chaldeans, the astrologers, all of that. And we talked about that Christmas Eve. If you weren't here, that was one of the things I said is that I will explain how the Christmas story coincides with the book of Daniel. Because Daniel was over these magi. It's where we get our word magic from. He was in charge of these guys 400 plus years before Jesus is born. And so they were set up. And these guys were not just astrologers. That was part of what they did. But they were mainly dream interpreters just like Daniel was. And so Daniel would have told them what to look for and be prepared because Gabriel, and you're going to see this today, tells Daniel the very day that Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem as the Messiah, as the king. Daniel prepared these guys, and so there was all of this undergirding that was going on that we see in the Christmas story. There's so much tradition behind what goes on in our Christmas stories that we don't realize that most of it has nothing to do with Scripture. In fact, it's not even scriptural. We just like it a lot, and we sing songs about it and things like that. So the first thing that we need to understand when it comes down to the book of Daniel is that the chapters that are here are not in chronological order. It's not 1 through 12, and that's one year to the next. Sometimes that works out that way. I think I've got it listed up here. And the first four chapters is 606 B.C. to 602 B.C. And you see this Babylon, Babylonian captivity, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, which he wanted Daniel to interpret, and then, of course, the image, which is where they get thrown into the fiery furnace, and then Nebuchadnezzar's pride, which God brings him down. Those are in chronological order. Then it jumps ahead. It goes to chapter 7 and 8. It's the vision of the four beasts and the ram and the goat vision, 556 to 554 B.C. Then it goes back. Chapter 5, and this is putting it in chronological order for you guys. This is when Babylon falls to the Persians, when they don't even realize it's happening. It didn't happen over a war. It was that they were partying, basically, and Cyrus diverts the, the Euphrates River. So all they had to do was basically walk under the gate. They just walked right in and took over, and you see that in chapter 5. Then it jumps to chapters 9, 6, and then 10 and 12 in that order, okay? So... Chapters 1 through 6 are historical in nature. Chapters 7 through 12 are prophetic 
in nature. And I told you this, is that this book is interesting because chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic while the rest of them are written in Hebrew. Now, this might just be a weird coincidence, but chapters 2 through 7 focus primarily on the Gentile world. And what did the Gentile not speak? Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic. Now, call that a coincidence if you want. I just think it's intriguing. Now, with that, and one more piece of information that I think is really cool is that we do not realize is that Nebuchadnezzar himself wrote the fourth chapter in the book of Daniel. And that's interesting because it is from him. It is a letter penned by him telling what's going on. So I told you that if we'd have time when we were doing all of this, we would try to look at really is one of the coolest portions of Scripture. It's Daniel chapter 9, and it's commonly known as Daniel 70 weeks. And so this will not be exhaustive. I don't intend it to be because it would take 70 weeks to really do it justice, in all honesty. We couldn't do this in a week, and we really couldn't do it in a couple weeks if we were going to focus our attention here. But I want to show you how powerfully accurate the book of Daniel is, because it is incredible how accurate this. This book gets divided into three basic sections. The first 19 verses is Daniel's prayer. This next three, is 20 through 23, is the visit of Gabriel the angel. And then, of course, 24 through 27 is these 70 weeks themselves. So, getting started, let's jump into Daniel chapter 9 and verse 1. We have it up on the screen if you didn't bring a Bible. I apologize, I've got a little bit of a cold that I'm getting over here. Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Hasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the numbers of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Okay, let's stop for a second. Darius is in control of the, per control of the area here. The Persians are ruling. We know that. Babylon's done. Okay? Daniel is an old man at this point. I mean, he was brought in as a teenager. He ain't a teenager anymore. Now, we know who's writing this because he says, I, Daniel. But what's interesting is that he just now realizes that these 70 years are about up. And how does he realize that? He is reading from the book of Jeremiah. In other words, this revelation is given to him through Scripture. Now, I find that interesting because a lot of times when we look at the Old Testament being written, it's being acted out as we read it, we forget that they had copies of the writings of the prophets in the course of the Tanakh, which would be the Old Testament. Everything that was written at this point, he would have copies of that. That is why we know that the Magi that came would actually would know a lot of this stuff because they had copies of the Hebrew Scriptures. Jewish people still lived in the Persian territory during the time of Herod the Great when Jesus was born. And so he is reading the book of Jeremiah, that this desolation that was going on would last for 70 years. And he has this revelation about it. Now, I'll say this because I have to say this. Daniel took this literally. Now, there are some that always try to make analogies out of everything. Well, as 70 years is not a literal number. No, he looks at this, hey, this 70 years is about up. We're about there. Some speculate that these things are just simply analogies and that's all it is. That's nonsense. That's not how Daniel took it. He knows that the time is up. What is he reading? He's reading out of Jeremiah chapter 25 and verse 11. 
And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will come to pass, when 70 years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. Now, the king of Babylon is not Nebuchadnezzar. It's not his son anymore. It is now the Persian. It's still Babylon, the city. It's not Babylon, the nation anymore. Also, he's reading out of Jeremiah 29. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. What place? To Jerusalem. They're going to go back in to the promised land. Now, Daniel realizes that this 70 years is almost up. Now, for you and I, if we're reading this, I, if we've sat underneath the reign of a bunch of bonehead pagan kings, right, they have not made his life easy. They've tried to kill him multiple times. I'd be getting excited, right? I'd be packing my bag. 70 years is almost here. I would be calling some travel agent. I'm taking a vacation on my way back to Jerusalem. But that is not what Daniel does. Let's look at verse 3, chapter 9, verse 3. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. So what does Daniel do? He immediately starts praying. He starts fasting. He starts repenting. He starts doing everything. I mean, he is just, he, he recognizes that as in everything, even the promises of God, he is praying for the nation of Israel and the people, his people, that this would come forth. Verse 5, we have sinned and committed iniquity and we have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgment. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and to all the people of the lands. Now, Daniel's words here are quite interesting because one of the things that I talked about is that there are two people in the Old Testament that nothing negative is ever written about. Joseph is the first one, and Daniel. That doesn't mean that they were sinless, because they certainly weren't. But yet, here you have Daniel repenting for himself and for the nation, and yet, in the way that the book is structured, nothing negative is written. He is repenting for his people. He is intermediary here. He is mediating this prayer. He's saying he's praying for the nation. God, let this 70 years be here, that your judgments are good. We rebelled. It's our fault that we were here. If we'd done what you told us to do, we wouldn't be in this situation. Verse 7. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face, as it is this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off and all the countries to which you have driven them, because of the unfaithfulness which, which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belong shame of face, and to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. Though we have rebelled against him, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God, to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law, and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. Now think back to this covenant, this book of the law that Moses wrote. This was contingent, right? There was contingency. God said that if you will do all that I say, keep my commandments and honor me, fear me, worship no other God, then everything's going to be cool. But if you don't, then you will bring judgment upon yourself. And he asked them, do you accept the terms? They say yes. We're talking about the Mosaic Covenant or the Sinai Covenant or whatever you want to call it. 
And they say, yes, we will. And of course, immediately they break it. And they've been breaking it ever since. They're still breaking it to this day, for that matter. But the national destiny of the nation of Israel is completely determined by its behavior. It's different for you and I because we're under a new and better covenant. Our covenant is based off the promises of God, which we fail to to meet the standards all the time. But His mercy is there. Their covenant was different. It was based on strict obedience to the law. Be good, be blessed. Be bad, be cursed. You think it would be simple and they would catch on. They don't catch on. Okay? In 2 Chronicles 7.14, this is what it says about it. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. We hear this said all the time and we say it about America. This was not written to America. This is written to the nation of Israel. That doesn't mean there's not truth that can be applied to America because we need to repent and turn back from our evil ways and go back to fearing God the way this nation was when it was first created. But the bottom line here is this is God's desire for his nation. Humble yourself, pray, repent, turn from your wicked ways. I will hear you. In other words, what Daniel is saying and what Second Chronicles is saying is that we know, God, that you are faithful to your covenant. And when we come back to you, you've got your hand open, you're ready for us. That's what he's saying. Let's look at verse 12. And he has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us for the Lord our God is righteous in all, his, all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord your God, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have yourself a name, as it is this day, we have sinned and we have done wickedly. I mean, Daniel is repenting for the nation. He is praying and crying out to God. This is a man who gets it. And you notice that it says, you're the one who brought your people out of the nation, or out of Egypt. He created this nation called Israel with standards and all of that. And he says, we have not obeyed your voice. We have sinned. We have done wickedly. And yet again, nothing negative is written about Daniel. He's a man that fears God. Sure, he sinned. But he wouldn't fall underneath this guideline. Because he hasn't sinned the way these guys have. He never turned his back on God. Even in the face of opposition, he stayed faithful to the commandments. And we saw that as we were reading through this book. He is repenting for all people. Verse 16, O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplication, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolation, and the city which is called by your name, for we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deed, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. This is powerful, folks. You can almost hear the trembling in Daniel's voice as he's crying out to God. Do not turn your back on us. We are your people. I love the part where he says, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. 
O Lord, listen and act and do not for your sake forget your city and your people. You know what he keeps saying. This is your people. This is your city. Jerusalem's in rubbles. I mean, it's, it's non-existent. The Persians destroyed it. Now, he's not done here. He would still be praying, but he gets interrupted. Now, I'm telling you, if when you're praying, if an angel interrupts you, it's okay to stop. Have a conversation with him for a little bit. Verse 20, now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. So here's Gabriel, shows up on the scene. He interrupts the petitions of Daniel. Now, there are three archangels that are mentioned in the Bible specifically by name. There are likely others. The book of Enoch mentions other, some of the other, what we would not call canonical books, mentions other name, one being Raphael. But that doesn't mean anything. It could just be made up. We don't know for sure, but there's likely more. But we know Michael, right? He's kind of the warrior. And we know the archangel that fell, Lucifer. We know all about him. But Gabriel, there's something about Gabriel. When you track Gabriel and every time he shows up on the scene, he seems to always be announcing something about the coming Messiah. Think about that for a minute. All through the Old Testament, when he shows up, it's all pointing towards Christ. And even in the New Testament, hey, there's a baby going to be born. He's showing up. But when did Gabriel arrive? When did he show up on the scene? It says that it was about the time of the evening offering. And that's interesting. Because there were no offerings that were going up. Because they're not in Jerusalem. There is no temple. There's nothing. Now, we saw Daniel would constantly, he would pray towards the, towards the west and pray towards Jerusalem, which was a common practice. They'd always pray towards the temple because the temple was what housed the presence of God. It was different than it is today. That was where the Ark of the Covenant was in the mercy seat, which was the throne of God in the Holy of Holies, where one time a year the high priest could go in there. That was it. But everybody prayed towards that. But he's not there. He's in Persia. He's 400 miles east of Jerusalem. The temple's destroyed. There is nothing but for him, it doesn't matter because now is the time in which we pray. And all this is showing us is the continued faithfulness of Daniel when he said this. He didn't say I was haphazardly praying. This is a pattern with him that you or that he is constantly still God-fearing and praying to God nonstop, just as if he was sitting in Jerusalem right now. In the face of judgment, in the face of disaster, in the face of all the negativity that went on, he still served God. So here's Gabriel, and Gabriel makes a very interesting statement. In verse 23, it says, Daniel, you are greatly beloved. Now, that doesn't immediately jump off the page, but this is powerful because there's not another person in the Old Testament that that is spoken about. Not one. It's interesting that he says that about Daniel. He didn't say about David. He didn't say about Solomon. He didn't say about Abraham. Didn't mean he didn't love them, but he calls us. Now, let's Connecting some dots here, and remember, we're always looking to find Christ in the Old Testament and things pointing to that. Who in the New Testament was the one that was greatly beloved? It was John, right? The one whom Jesus loved. John wrote the book. I mean, it seemed kind of a self-fulfilling you know, prophecy there. But, but it's interesting that when you compare Daniel 
and the Apostle John. Because we know that Daniel, who's greatly beloved in the Old Testament, John, who's greatly beloved in the New Testament, Daniel is given this apocalyptic, this apocalypse visions of the future, of what's coming. Even stuff that's yet to be fulfilled, which we'll talk about that here in a minute. But what was John given? Book of Revelation. The exact same thing. The only two people where it says that they were greatly beloved, and yet they're both given this apocalypse, I can't even say the word, this apocalypse insight, right? Now, I don't, again, I don't think that's a coincidence. I think it's interesting how they are a consistency of relationship that's going on here, okay? So call me crazy if you want, but I just find that intriguing. Now, the next four verses, Daniel's here, and so is Gabriel, are the 70 weeks, and this is what everybody talks about. The first one is the scope, verse 25 is the 69 weeks, and really that is probably the most startling passage in the Bible, which you're going to see here momentarily. Verse 26 is the interval. We call it the gap or the uh, whatever you want to call it there. And, of course, the 27th would be the 70th week when Jesus returns. Now, we're going to focus on verse 24 and verse 25. We're not even going to get in to 26 and 27, and I'll tell you why is because, again, it would take 70 weeks to do this justice, okay? I know a lot of you guys have studied prophecy. A lot of you guys enjoy it. We will talk about this somewhat in, on our Wednesday night when we talk about the book of Revelation because you can't not talk about Daniel without doing that. So let's look at verse 24. This is Gabriel speaking. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make a reconcili reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Okay, so first we've got this 70 weeks as a whole, okay? Who's it to? It says to your people. Who is your people? Jews, Israel, right. To your holy city. What's the holy city? Jerusalem, right. So who is this specifically towards? The Jews in Jerusalem. Okay? Some people try, oh, it's you know, the Gentiles and all this stuff. This is specifically to them. Now, it says six things that are going to take place in this 70-week span, all of it. Okay? It's going to finish the transgression. You're going to make an end of sins. You're going to make reconciliation for iniquity. You're going to bring in everlasting righteousness. You're going to seal up vision and prophecy. In other words, there will be no more. And you're going to anoint the most holy. Now, has this happened? I mean, maybe we could argue some of it probably has. So if it hasn't all happened, have we entered the 70th week yet? Can't, because this would be incorrect then. So those who, there's things that are called amillennialist or preterist or things like that to say we are living in that time right now, the 70th week, or it's already taken place, and we're in the thousand-year reign and all this other nonsense that's out there. If that doesn't make sense to you, ask me afterwards, I'll explain it. But the bottom line is, is that we can't be because this has not been completed yet. So because of that, the 70 weeks here, now let me explain this. This is a Hebrew phrase. This is, makes no sense to us in English. If we spoke Hebrew, we would pick up on it immediately. But it's meaning 70 sevens, okay? So it's 70 periods of 70 years. That makes sense? So in other words, 70 times seven for all you non-homeschool public school people, 490 years, right? So a total of 490 years, but there is a gap in between there, and we don't know exactly how long that would be. So we see the point of the overall 70 weeks. We see what's going to happen. We see who is to. We see all of that. Let's look at verse 25. Know, therefore, and understand 
that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. So, 7 plus 62 is 69, right? That's why we've got the 70th week that they talk about, that, that we're not going to talk about, but they talk about that we can't possibly be in it yet because it's not fulfilled. So we have 69 weeks. Now this, and this is going to be fun for all you guys because this is a mathematical prophecy. We love math, right? Diana was in here, I think it was Thursday, and she came in and, and like my head was pounded and she said, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm doing a lot of math right now because I've done all the math for you. You're welcome. You're welcome. I'm going to show you how all this works. But it's a mathematical prophecy. It says that from one event to another event is 69 weeks. It's a specified time period. Now, remember, Daniel's old here, okay? He's grabbed as a teenager. He rises to power for Babylon. Cyrus takes over. He rises to power again. Jerusalem is no more. It's in rubble. They've destroyed it. The temple is destroyed. There's nothing there. What does it say? It says, from the going forth of the decree until Messiah the Prince. Now, I think it's interesting here because the Holy Spirit seems to always have something, some footnote that it has in here that we can diffuse a misconception oftentimes, just by simply studying the Scripture. In other words, you don't have to have somebody show up and say, let me explain to you what this means, because that's how cults form. It's interesting. And so he adds this thing, because it says, when the streets and the walls will be built again. He anticipates this misunderstanding. So it's basically from the commandment to restore the walls and the streets of Jerusalem until the Messiah declares himself to be worshipped would be 483 years. This is 69 weeks, okay? Now, most Bible footnotes here in this passage, and if you're looking at your Bible, you should look, it says that there were three declarations to restore Jerusalem. There are actually four. There's not three, there's four because they overlook one. Here they are. You've got Cyrus in 537 B.C. in the book of Ezra. He tells Ezra, go rebuild the temple. You've got Darius in Ezra 6. says, go rebuild the temple. You've got Artaxerxes in 458 B.C. He sends them over to go home and build their temple. The reason they keep sending them back is they can't get it built. Because they've got invaders that keep coming in. Why do they keep coming in? Because there's no wall. They can't protect them. The wall isn't told to be built until 445 B.C. by Artaxerxes. And that's in Nehemiah chapter 2. And that's the one that they missed. So now what are we looking at? What was Gabriel's decree? It was when the streets and the walls are decreed to be rebuilt. That means we're looking at one of these and not the other. We're looking at the last one only. And so we want to know exactly when did that take place. Gabriel's decree, I'm going to read it again. Chapter 9, verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. Now, to build the streets and the walls, there are two different words that are used here. Rechab is the Hebrew word for streets. Simple enough. Sharuts, C-H-A-R-U-T-S, means a wall or a moat. Could be either one, and there was both because there were things that were going around the wall. Really, we're only interested in the last one here. This is the one we're interested in, 445 B.C. 
Now, there's a guy out there named Sir Robert Anderson. He, he, uh, he was a biblical scholar, but he, he was basically a, a police officer in London. And, and was it London Yard? No, what do they call that? Scotland Yard. Thank you, thank you. And uh, he's the one that actually went there and, and dug out all the historical documents because we actually can dig out and figure out exactly when this decree went forth. It was March 14th, 445 B.C. It's chronicled in the book of Nehemiah. It's the decree of Artaxerxes Longamanus. So March 14th, 445 B.C. is the very day that that decree went to go and build the wall and the streets of Jerusalem. And that's what we're looking for. So we know the starting point. Now, what kind of year are we talking about? Because you and I, we live in a, a different type of calendar than they did there. We have 365-day years. But what about the Bible? The biblical usage is always a 360-day year. You see it in Genesis. You see it in Daniel. You see it in the book of Revelation. They use a 360-day year. What's interesting is all ancient calendars, all of them, used a 360-day year. The Assyrians, the Egyptians, the, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, the Hindus, the Chinese. I mean, everybody used a 360-day calendar all until about 701 B.C., and then they had to change it. They changed it to what we have as this 365-day calendar. And I can't prove this for sure, but that is right about the time where Joshua's long day took place. Remember where God held the sun open while they were battling? Now that, could, again, could be a coincidence, but it's right in that time frame. I don't think that it is. Joshua chapter 10, verse 12 and 13, that's where that's at. So we're going to base this off of a 360-day year because that's what they use, a 360-day year. So we've got 69 weeks of years. So we take 69 times 7, that's 483. If we take that 483 years times 360, we have 173,880 days. It's the time frame that we're looking for from the commandment to restore the walls of Jerusalem to when Jesus himself will be announced and he'll allow himself to be worshipped. Remember, Jesus did not receive worship while he was on the earth. He always pointed everybody to God, right? He wasn't there to be worshipped. So Gabriel is basically telling Daniel, from the commandment of the walls to the Messiah, shows up 173,880 days. So we know their starting point, March 14th, 445 B.C. Now, let's look at Zechariah chapter 9. In verse 9, you're familiar with this, I'm sure. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. We know this, right? We hear about it every Easter. What's about to happen? This is the verse in which Jesus acts out in Luke chapter 19. Let's look at that. Luke chapter 19, verse 28. When he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, and it came to pass when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, Because the Lord has need of it. What is Jesus doing? He is deliberately fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9. Verse 9, what's he telling everybody if they know their Old Testament? Or it wasn't called the Old Testament then, it was their Bible, right? He is fulfilling this prophecy, I am the Messiah. Let's look at verse 32. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. 
Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. And then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had, been, had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, there's some nuances in here that you and I do not pick up on because we're Gentiles. We did not grow up being taught the Tanakh and the Old Testament and being taught all of these things. But the beautiful thing is, is, is that if you as a simple Bible student look at all the things that make the Pharisees mad, you can actually pick up what is going on in the background here. Because in the next verse, in verse 39, And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now, why are the, the Pharisees getting all ticked off? Because they're mad. He's simply riding a donkey, and the followers of him were shouting his name, basically, Blessed be the king, all that. Why do they even care? This is what we miss out on is that what they're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, comes from Psalm 118. And this is a psalm that is worshiping God and declaring the Messiah. That's what we miss. The Pharisees knew that. So why are they getting mad? Because these people now are telling, yelling that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus, for the first time, did not stop them. He allows them to worship him. This is interesting because this is the time of the Passover. And basically, we, because the Jews kept meticulous records as well as other things, and you can actually plug these things into astronomical stuff and go back to the exact date. This is at the time of the Passover. We know this. We know what's going to happen next, right? This took place on April 6th of 32 AD. Okay? Now let's do some math. If we go from 40, 445 BC to 32 AD, we have 173,740 days, okay? It's not what we're looking for. But then we add in the March 14th to the 6th, April 6th, we add another 24 days, getting closer. But the one thing that we forget about is that these things called leap years, because we've got we've to factor them in. We've got to add a day every year. Based off the time period, we would add 116 days, which comes to... 173,880 days, which is exactly what Gabriel said, that until the decree that would go forth, that the walls would be built, until Jesus allows himself to be worshipped as the Messiah, which we just saw on April 6th. These are powerful words, guys. I mean, down to the day, Gabriel's margin of error was zero. This is one of the many reasons that people will say that the book of Daniel had to be written after all of this time, because it, it nails what's going on in the time period between Malachi and Matthew, and it's so precise. The reason I'm telling you guys is that some will sit there, if you read commentaries, they say, well, we don't know when that decree went forth, because they're saying, was it the Jerusalem one with the temple and all of these other ones? They look at the three, they missed the one with Artaxerxes. 173,880 days. How on earth did Daniel know that? It's because God revealed it to him. And this is what's so amazing about our Bible is it's so powerful and it's so true. And if you can catch this, then you can believe every single word that's written on it. Now, another thing that happens right after this moment, he rides in there. And it's, it's really, it's powerful, but it's confusing because it throws something off. Let's look at verse 41. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city. This is Jesus. And he wept over it. What city? Jerusalem. 
saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. What's he talking about? There's a destruction coming to Jerusalem again in 70 AD. This is part of the reason we know that the New Testament was written prior to that because this was a big deal. Because if this had happened before any part of the New Testament had been written, then it would have been in there. They would have written about that, the destruction. Millions, over a million Jews were killed at this time. But Jesus is weeping for them. Why? Why did he say this judgment is coming? Why is he weeping for them? It says in the very last line, because you did not know the time of your visitation, which is taking place at that very moment. In other words, you should have known. Daniel laid it out for you. What day I, the Messiah, would be coming into Jerusalem, riding on this colt. Everything was there, and they still missed it. Why did they miss it? Because they chose not to see it. And therefore, that is why the temple was destroyed again in 70 AD and why the destruction upon Jerusalem took place, in case you've ever wondered why. They did not know the time of the visitation. God put a standard on them that they would know when the Messiah was coming. He said it, you know, the signs and the seasons and everything we can track on. What does that say for you and I? Now, I'm not a big eschatology guy. I don't get into the end time stuff a whole lot. It's not, not my bread and butter. It's not where I spend a lot of time. And the main reason for that is because we get so focused on the end times that we're not talking about the current time and how we need to be out there doing the work of the Lord and things like that, but we're focused on the things to come. But I will tell you this, it's just like them. God expects us to be ready, to be watching, and to know because the times are there. Isn't the Bible powerful? I mean, it's good. It's amazing when we break this down. And so I'm so thankful for God for this. I'm so thankful for, for that he has all these little things. Now, if we got into the next half, the last two verses of Daniel, again, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting. You need to be here on Wednesday nights because we'll, we'll get through some of that. So um, we want to do this. I don't know if you guys have heard is um, Aggie's in the hospital, and it doesn't sound like she's doing well. In fact, she may not make it. And so we want to take a minute and pray for the family. Um, you know, she's, she's lived a full life. He even told Jim the other day he's doing her funeral, and he has to sing three songs. He's pretty excited about it. No, I'm just kidding. He doesn't have to sing any songs. But, um, but we want to pray for the family, and, and, and uh, I think we're probably there's some of us going to go see her today and, and all of that, but we just want to pray for him. So let's just do that. Father, we thank you for, for Agnes, Lord, and we just thank you for bringing her into our lives, Lord, as she has made her mark on everybody. And Lord, if this is the time and she's ready to go, we want to rejoice with her. This isn't a time of being sad and she lived a long and full life. And, and Lord, she's been a blessing to so many. And I just thank you that it'd be a time of peace for the family and a time of peace for everybody involved, Lord. And I just thank you that your spirit is there and is moving and touching their lives and, and bringing them joy in what could seem like a sad time, Lord. But we thank you for the opportunities that we've had to know her. And Lord, as I said, if this is it, fine, but if she wants to be healed, Lord, we know you'll do it. And so we just thank you, Lord, that whatever that she wants, Father, that we just stand in agreement with her. We give you the glory for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, I'll say this one more time, or this, this one last thing, and then we're going to get out of here. But I was praying last night, and I just want to share with you guys is that the Lord told me that just keep your hope and faith in him. He's got this. He knows it's stressful. He knows what's going on. He's got it all under control. Be faithful to him. He's continued to be faithful to you. God, God's a big God. He knows. He knows, right? And so sometimes things are hard, and sometimes we don't understand why, but he's got it all 
under control. And I'll tell you guys, this church is that this is important family, and we love them dearly. And sometimes life doesn't seem fair, and sometimes life throws us a curveball that we don't like. But you know what helps? Prayer. You know what helps? A hug. And sometimes a good old-fashioned Pentecostal handshake goes a long way, if you know what I'm saying. So bless God. We thank Him, and, and He is good. And we are a church family, and we stand together. Amen? Right. You all have a great week. We'll talk to you guys soon. Be blessed.